Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we will be joined by Federico Steinberg, our visiting fellow with the CSIS Europe-Russia-Eurasia program, to discuss the EU's new economic security strategy. Then we will turn to a conversation with David Quarry, the United Kingdom's permanent representative to NATO. Last week, I was joined by Ambassador Quarry for a CSIS public event to preview this month's NATO summit in Vilnius. The interview has been shortened for length and clarity. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, Federico, thank you so much for joining us. I should also mention that you're a longstanding fellow with Elcano in, in Madrid. We want to talk with you about the European uh, economic security strategy. Ursula von der Leyen uh, made a big announcement about this uh, economic security strategy. It's sort of seen as coming on the heels of a speech that Jake Sullivan uh, gave at the Brookings Institution where he outlined a a U.S. economic security strategy. Maybe you could outline for us um, what what were sort of your main takeaways? What are the big high points here of, of this announcement? Well, yes, thank you for having me. And as you're saying, uh, the European Union has traditionally separated a little bit, you know, economic policy, trade policy with security concerns. And this has a lot to do with the fact that the the European Union is not the United States of Europe. Probably it will never be, uh, but it's moving in that direction. And given the changes in in the global geopolitical situation, it understood, especially after uh, COVID and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that this approach to globalization and interdependence, which was a little bit uh, naive or optimistic, had to be re-evaluated. Therefore, it, it had to take into account that economic security is going to be much more relevant now. But at the same time, it doesn't want to uh, decouple with the rest of, of, of the world and particularly with China, right? So it went ahead with a, with a balanced strategy, which clearly aligns it a little bit with the U.S. position uh, vis-a-vis Russia and China, but which is country agnostic. So this means that it doesn't talk specifically about uh, China, and it has a de-risking as the key word, not decoupling. This is something that the Europeans uh, have uh, probably convinced uh, the Americans, Jake Sullivan, to also try to emphasize. But at the same time, it puts on the table the need uh, to improve competitiveness, but also uh, make sure uh, you know, there are no attacks on, on European economies. And at the same time, you know, it aligns with the U.S. position on export controls, outbound investment screenings, and a number of elements that are quite new on the, on the economic agenda. So the strategy seems to me to really align with what the Biden administration uh, outlined and, and what the United States has been been pushing on China. But there was a lot of internal debate within the EU. This was, I think, seen as perhaps, you know, von der Leyen maybe overstepping her her bounds a little bit. It led to some backlash from, from Berlin and other places. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the sausage making here. What were the, the key debates and wh- what was kind of left out or or, or what made it in that surprised you? Yes, well, the first thing to say here is that this is a joint communique by the Commission and the Office of the High Representative, which means they are trying to uh, you know, bring in a foreign policy with national security and economic security. The second thing we have to say is that 
national security is a prerogative of the nation states of the European Union, not of the European Union. So the EU cannot tell Germany or France or Spain, uh, look, you cannot uh, allow for exports of uh, critical minerals to China, for example, right? This has to be decided at the national level. So there's this intent to coordinate the actions of the different ones. And here, apart from that, what, what you mentioned is, is, is correct, basically, that the the, the president of the commission has taken a leading role because uh, Ursula von der Leyen basically in March when he was uh, she was in D.C. Uh, kind of uh, told President Biden that the EU was going to align completely with the U.S. on most of these issues. Then you have had some res you had some resistance, particularly from German companies who are worried that export controls, outbound investment screening, etc., could generate a loss of business in China and also retaliation from China. And that's what probably what led to this, uh, you know, language which is a little bit light on, you know, not mentioning countries specifically. Of course, the dangers of interdependence, the weaponization of interdependence is there. The need to improve the industrial base in Europe, the need to do assessments of, you know, uh, the risks of being too dependent on specific countries. But all in all, probably we could say that some member states, the big ones, the strong ones, were able to stop a little bit the impetus of, of President von der Leyen, which was uh, you know, aiming for something much more aligned with the US policy. It's important to mention here as well that overall in the EU, there's this uh, concern of what's going to happen uh, after 2024 uh, uh, with the, at the White House, right, with uh, the new elections, because uh, basically uh, the alignment with the US, with the Biden administration, seems to be comfortable for most uh, member states and the commission. But, you know, if, if uh, Donald Trump is, is back at the White House, this could be really different because part, in part the economic security elements of this strategy have something to do also with the perception that the Trump administration was actually not being that nice to the European Union during the, the, the trade wars and the steel and aluminum tariffs, etc. Not being that nice is a euphemism, I think, in this situation, given the state of relationship in this um, during that time. There are really four things that jumped out at me in the strategy, and you've mentioned two of them. Those two are the more challenging pieces for me is one... You mentioned the fact that this national security really lies at the member state level. There's clearly going to be a long process of determining what that means between the commission, the, v the HRVP and the member states. The part on economic resilience was four lines in a 12 page conclusions from the European Council last week and between June 29th and June 30th. So it seems to me like there's going to be a lot of cooks in the kitchen for at least the risk assessment piece. That's, to me, that's gonna be the biggest horse trading is, as you mentioned, the German industry is gonna have a lot of feelings about this. The second piece is the elephant in the room that is somehow not in the strategy with just China. The word is not mentioned at all. And I think it's interesting that you, you framed it as, or they framed it, I suppose, as country agnostic. Whereas I was reading it, and to me, it's the most obvious of targets or or mentions in the background between the lines. It's a lot about China. But the conclusions also restate that China is at the same time a partner, a systemic rival, a competitor. So I feel like there's a lot of ambivalence on these dynamics. But the other two pieces that jumped out at me that are more on the positive side is one, this felt like the EU really taking a power or foreign security, a foreign policy lens 
to the economy, which is something it's taken a long time for them to get there, really leveraging their partnerships with, as they mentioned, US, India, Japan, the G7. So that's, I feel like that's a really positive step, even if it's pushed mostly by the commission and HRVP because they have to, but I feel like member states are probably open to that. And the last one is the new tools, things like discussing outbound investments definitely felt like getting closer to the U.S. approach to this. So I feel like there's a lot of potential on those issues to have this alignment between the two sides. Yeah, I I would uh, emphasize that uh, on the relationship with partners, uh, allies and institutions like WTO, the, the EU has a, a different take to that of the United States, I think. The EU still argues, even in the strategy, which is a bit naive, I think, that the WTO should be you know, protected and, and reformed and that the WTO is an element, a key element in, in the European economic security, which clearly it's not up to the task, right? But it's, it's there. And then there's emphasis on partnerships, right? New trade agreements, new relationships, diversification of supply chains, uh, but always on a, you know, trying to, to go on with the European motto of uh, open markets and rules-based systems and agreements. That's completely different to the U.S. take, I think, in which there's no market access for anyone, no FTA forthcoming from, from the U.S., to anybody, uh, new new ways to talk about you know collaboration in Asia, in America, uh, but nothing that you know has content. Uh, so that's quite distinct from the U.S. and the EU because the EU wants to maintain this state of promoting uh, free trade agreements and the rules-based system, even if it's at the regional level or bi-regional level, if not at the multilateral. Uh, and then on the other topic, you're totally right on outbound investment screening and, and export controls. Here, the alignment with the U.S. is, is more clear. There was some confusion and discussions in, in the EU because uh, the Netherlands followed the U.S. In, in export controls to China. But then you, you have to coordinate that somehow. Uh, and, and a final point here on China, uh, the conclusions of the European Council mention you know this this new relationship with China, uh, which is you know in addition to to the economic security strategy. And here the EU wants to be very cautious because basically it agrees that it has to be more resilient and rearrange supply chains and diversify suppliers like the US. But it's not willing to go as far as the US, and it doesn't want the world to be dominated by the geopolitical competition between China and the US. And also the EU wants to promote, you know, this idea of cooperation, interdependence. At the end of the day, if we can make more rules, we, it's going to work. And if not, it's going to create a lot of economic losses, right? And this is a big distinct thing from the U.S. take. Yeah, I think your, your point on trade is really interesting because it does strike me as that this is potentially an EU comparative advantage or a real asset when engaging the rest of the world that it's, it's still willing potentially to provide market access. It's negotiating a, a trade agreement with Mercosur in, in, in South America. Uh, and that this could, I guess there's also a deal with Australia potentially in the works as well. So this, is, I think, is an advantage that the EU has perhaps in, in, in international affairs. But I want to ask you about EU industrial policy. Because one of the, the main tenets of Jake Sullivan's speech was basically the U.S. returning to industrial policy. The Biden administration passed the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act basically gave, you know, many, I think, in the EU 
uh, trade directorate on aneurysm. Uh, European countries were freaking out about you know the, the the American subsidies, sort of forgetting that this is actually a climate bill. But the U.S. response, I thought, was quite interesting. You know, we deployed John Kerry and Catherine Tai to say, "Do your own Inflation Reduction Act." Basically, Americans becoming the biggest champions of an EU fiscal policy, fiscal union. Um, but you know, there's been talk of an EU sovereignty fund. It was rolled out. It just looked like basically old wine in new bottles. Didn't seem that there was much there. What are the prospects of the EU actually doing an industrial policy that can potentially match what we're seeing uh, here in the United States? Well, yes, that's a big thing. And with the IRA tension, I think on electric vehicles, especially, we have to say that it's mostly been resolved by some of the Treasury Department uh, guidelines on the IRA, which probably would allow you know, some uh, European vehicles to, to benefit from the subsidies. And there's an ongoing negotiation for a critical minerals free trade agreement that would you know, allow uh, batteries uh, built in Europe to be used in cars uh, sold in the US and get the subsidy. But the, the big question, as you said, is the EU capable of putting you know, on the table the amount of money that's necessary uh, on climate, on electrification, solar panels, electric vehicles, hydrogen, etc., etc., to reaffirm that it's, it's going to be one of the big players? And the problem is that uh, the only thing that's happening now is the revision of the fiscal rules, which is taking place this semester, and the revision of the European budget uh, that also goes for the need to increase funding for Ukraine. And that's probably not going to be enough. And the, the difficulty is that basically we have to, in Europe, coordinate the state aid rules with the fact that we don't have a big fiscal union, a big capacity, fiscal central capacity like the one the U.S. has. So this is uh, going to be an ongoing discussion in the next months. Right. So like basically what's happening is Germany is pushing to, to loosen the state aid rules. Germany wants to provide lots of money for its industries because energy prices are high and Germany is an energy poor country that was dependent on cheap Russian gas. Uh, but we don't see that same sort of effort at, at the EU level. In fact, Germany now pushing to restrict uh, a lot of EU in, investment, uh, at least with the, the stability and growth pact, if, if Germany were to, to get their way. But I guess maybe just sort of one final thought for me, and then I'll turn it over to Danetian for, for a final question, is this does strike me as, as kind of a, a watershed moment for the EU, where the EU previously, you know, has sort of been, well, we don't really do geopolitics, we're just for openness you know, globalization, free markets, we want to reduce barriers. But suddenly all these tools that have been given to the EU in terms of trade policy, regulatory policy, climate, actually have real geopolitical uh, implications. And if the EU is, you know, the EU is empowered here, really, you could argue the EU on China policy is the driver. It's not really the member states because the EU has the authority in many of the key economic sectors. So I think this is sort of another step on the road to the EU becoming a geopolitical actor, as, as Ursula von der Leyen outlined you know, at the beginning of her, her tenure, saying this is going to be a geopolitical commission. It looks like it's, it's coming, tr coming true. But maybe I'll turn it over to Danetian uh, for, for a final question. Thanks, Max. I'd like to look forward to close out this conversation on, you mentioned the 2024 U.S. election, but there are also EU parliament elections next year. So where do you see this particular dossier, let's say, going in the next year? How much can they accomplish before those elections? And what could happen if the balance of power in the parliament and just across the EU with the elections that we have coming up in the national 
in the member states, where could this go in a good scenario, in a complicated, challenging scenario? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, probably in the next months, we'll see technical work by the Commission, uh, less political. So the evaluation of the risks, uh, where are the supply chains, where are the critical minerals that the EU needs, etc. And, you know, there's going to be a, a group of experts created for outbound investment that will you know, prepare a report, so, some more technical work. But then the, the key thing is what you're, you're mentioning, right? Uh, there's, there, there's a tendency uh, that Max mentioned towards uh, more cooperation and more power to the European institutions, which goes in the direction of Europe being able to play this role as a geopolitical actor. But on the other hand, there's nationalism and, and political forces that don't want deeper integration. That goes mainly for the extreme right in Eastern Europe, but also uh, in other countries. We are seeing alternative for Deutschland pulling very high. We have uh, Georgia Meloni extreme right as a prime minister of Italy. Um, so basically the big risk, I would say, is that within Europe, you have a lack of commitment to the necessity to integrate further because of uh, nationalistic takes. And everybody in Europe understands that, you know, outside the EU, things are much more complicated. So there's not any more talk about leaving the EU like in the past. It's just blocking deeper integration with an agenda of nationalist elements, migration, and things that, you know, don't really help to, to, to advance these capacities of the European Union in, in foreign economic policy. I think that's a great place to, to leave it. Thanks so much, Federico, for joining us for the conversation. This is something we'll keep an eye on. I think it's a, it's a big moment for the European Union. So I'm excited to see where it goes. And we'll definitely have you back on to discuss any developments on that. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Federico. Good morning, everyone. I'm Max Bergman. I'm the director of the Europe-Russia-Eurasia program uh, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, DC. Uh, and it is my real uh, distinct honor to have Ambassador David Quarry, uh, who is currently serving as the UK uh, permanent representative of the United Kingdom to NATO. Um, and before we start, I wanted to acknowledge the British defense staff uh, in the United States for making uh, this event possible. Uh, and we're here to discuss the upcoming NATO summit uh, taking place in Vilnius in Lithuania uh, in just a few weeks, in less than two weeks, actually. Uh, and so the focus of, of our discussion will, of course, be that. Uh, will be uh, NATO's support to Ukraine, uh, potential membership for, for Sweden and impacts of uh, Finland having joined the alliance. Uh, we'll talk about the Defense Investment Pledge uh, uh, the, the need for Europe to develop its defense industrial capacity, uh, and NATO's new force model, as well as other issues. And so we're so excited to have uh, Ambassador Corey uh, here with us. Let me briefly introduce him. Ambassador Corey was appointed uh, as the UK's permanent representative to NATO uh, in April 2022. Uh, before this, Ambassador Corey served as the Prime Minister's Advisor on International Affairs and Deputy National Security Advisor from 2019 to 2022, and, uh, and he served as British ambassador to Israel from 2015 to 2019. He also had uh, numerous roles before that, but we won't go into uh, his in entire bio. But Ambassador Corey, thanks so much for being here with us today. No, absolutely my pleasure. And uh, good morning, uh, well, good afternoon from Brussels. Yes. Uh, now, let me, uh, let me start by asking you um, you know, the summit last year in Madrid was obviously 
uh, came in the months following uh, um, the uh, Russia's invasion. It was the, also the, the time, the moment to release the new strategic concept for NATO. Uh, what do you see sort of the main goal of this summit? Is this summit really to sort of fill in some of the, the details of what uh, happened last year at Madrid? Um, we're obviously going to be talking about Ukraine, but what do you think the major theme is right now of, of the Vilnius summit uh, that, will, that is soon upon us? Well, thanks, Max. Um, people have talked about uh, Vilnius as an implementation summit, and in some respects it is that. But it is implementation at a strategic level. Uh, Madrid was, as you noted, uh, a really important moment for the alliance with a new strategic concept and in reaffirming allied unity and support of Ukraine just a few months into the conflict. But the Vilnius summit in a couple of weeks' time is on track to take some really big and important uh, decisions about the future of the alliance. In some respects, implementing Madrid, uh, but also uh, taking the alliance a whole big step forward in terms of its transformation as it adapts to a world which is increasingly contested and unfortunately sees a lot more conflict around. So we've got five broad priorities uh, as the UK for Vilnius. First of all, reinforcing uh, deterrence and defence. We've done well as an alliance over the last year in those terms, but we need to keep that moving forward. Secondly, we need to continue the transformation uh, of the alliance, uh, including through investment in, in industry, some of the points you mentioned uh, earlier. Thirdly, we want to see uh, Sweden uh, join the alliance and to complete the process that has started with Finland joining. Uh, fourthly, uh, Ukraine, of course, will be a very big theme for uh, Vilnius, alongside, alongside support to uh, other partners. And finally, we want to see NATO continuing to advance its work on China and other global challenges. So th that's a big agenda, and I'm sure we can dig into many of those areas uh, as we talk today. But it's 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 a big, strategically significant agenda, in my view. Yeah, no, clearly a lot on the the table. Uh, maybe let's start with the uh, reinforcing uh, uh, deterrence and, and defense of of the alliances, as, as you outlined up being the UK's top priority. NATO last year outlined a, a new force model where essentially would require uh, a major increase in the readiness of European forces, of the need to have hundreds of thousands of forces that would be ready in a fairly short amount of time to uh, to sort of defend essentially every inch of NATO territory. Um, what do you think the progress has been thus far in the last year in trying to meet some of those goals that have been set out at, at Madrid? I think we've made a lot of progress and we are on track, I think, at Vilnius to agree a number of measures, one of which will be the new regional military plans, which represent a, a big step forward in terms of uh, readiness and preparing the alliance to deter and, if necessary, defend in this uh, increasingly difficult uh, security situation in the Euro-Atlantic region. The second is the new force model that you mentioned, which uh, aims to give SACUR a much clearer picture of which forces are available, where, at what levels of readiness and with what capabilities in order to deliver those uh, regional plans. Third, there'll be some adjustment to the way that NATO commands and controls as well. And if you put all three of those together, that is the most significant development in terms of NATO's deterrence and defence 
since the end of the Cold War. This is a big moment for the Alliance. Uh, as you said, this uh, comes with uh, a stepping up of uh, Alliance readiness in terms of the forces available to secure. We are working through that uh, process at the moment with individual allies committing to the new force model. I'm very confident that we will come out of Madrid, first of all, with the plans agreed as the basis on which we will deter and defend. And secondly, with a much clearer, stronger, sort of bigger picture of force available to uh, to deliver those plans. So maybe we could unpack the the um, the regional plans in uh, a little bit. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about the significance of the shift. What, what, how was it done before? Why do these regional, uh, why does regional planning matter? And, and how will that sort of impact how the alliance uh, uh, it works? So I think that the, the big picture on this is that for many years, the alliance was quite heavily focused on essentially expeditionary out of area deployments. So uh, particularly in Afghanistan, of course, but also elsewhere. Because of the deteriorating uh, security situation in the Euro-Atlantic, which in some ways started in 2008, accelerated in 2014 with uh, Russia's invasion of Crimea and uh, other parts of Ukraine, but then really uh, deteriorated very rapidly last uh, February with Putin's brutal and uh, illegal full invasion of Ukraine. That's what you know, the, the, the planning process is, is really designed to address that more complex and more challenging situation. It's a comprehensive set of plans. Uh, they are multi-domain, as we would say. So not just land, sea and air, the traditional domains, but also cyber and uh, space, the, the newer domains. And it's it applies to the new deterrence theory and the NATO sort of war fighting capstone concept, as it's called. It applies all of that so that we are confident that we have modern concepts of deterrence and defense in place, which are linked to specific geographies. But also, importantly, they are then very closely aligned now with individual allies' national defense plans. So it's really a much more comprehensive, uh, comprehensive set of plans uh, and those plans which are updated to reflect the reality of the, the modern security situation. So, so as I understand, the regional plans will really help shape uh, and direct, it, to some degree, uh, national procurement. So countries, NATO members will know what they need to do to to meet uh, the planning targets. I guess the, the, the question then is when, you know, we look at the war in Ukraine and we look at um, uh, the amount of equipment that many European countries, the UK, the US uh, as well, uh, but, but many uh, former uh, Warsaw Pact NATO members have provided substantial amount of their old Soviet fleets to Ukraine. Um, is there a concern in the alliance that we're sort of setting these these uh, uh, ambitious targets, yet in the act of supporting Ukraine, we've actually sort of maybe uh, uh, weakened our forces to some degree by giving away lots of equipment, totally necessary, uh, but that we're now setting these ambitious goals where we need to really spend to try to get back to where many of these militaries were. Do you think that's a, a concern right now that, that these forces are somewhat too depleted to actually meet the kind of plans that have been uh, outlined? Well, I think there are a number of points there. First of all, it is absolutely the right thing uh, that we are doing in terms of providing such extraordinary levels of support to Ukraine. They are fighting for their sovereignty and territorial integrity. They are fighting for European values. So, you know, I'm very proud that the UK was the first ally to provide 
uh, lethal equipment to uh, Ukraine after the invasion last year. But across the alliance, there's really been an extraordinary effort to give Ukraine the tools it needs to do to, to do the job. Now, that has come at a cost in terms of alliance stockpiles, in terms of some, a lot of the equipment that we have uh, provided. And I think if we're honest, we are all learning hard lessons about the need to increase defence investment, but also to boost defence industrial capacity across the alliance. Because we can see as we look forward that um, the security situation in the Atlantic region is unfortunately unlikely to improve significantly in coming years. We need to be ready for a more contested and complex world. We need to have the means to deter and if necessary, defend. So in the end, that means we do have to increase our defence investment, but also to make sure that we've got the defence industrial capacity so that we can replenish our stocks, that we can continue supplying uh, the kit to Ukraine that I'm sure it will need uh, for years, but also that if there is any future crisis, that we can replenish quickly as we go into such a such, such a crisis. So it's it's a big agenda that's coming out of all this. Yeah, and maybe just to to drill down a little bit on the defense industrial question, uh, is that a major topic that NATO is going to try to tackle uh, at this summit? Um, on the one hand, it strikes me as NATO strikes me as the perfect format to sort of try to uh, facilitate uh, some defense industrial cooperation and initiatives. On the other hand, NATO is not a country; it's it's a multilateral organization, uh, and that you know these then become national decisions in terms of, uh, of procurement and and national defense industries. What what role do you see NATO really playing here uh, as uh, you know we try to revive the the defense industrial capacity uh, of the alliance, particularly uh, of, of of our European partners? Yeah, this is absolutely one of our highest uh, priorities for the for the Vilnius summit. And we are hoping that we will have agreement on a new defence production uh, action plan coming out of uh, Vilnius. NATO for us is central to this agenda. It can't do everything. Uh, and actually, cooperation with the EU will be uh, an important theme of, of, of work that we do on uh, defence industrial. But NATO really has a critical role to play. And I would highlight three uh, particular areas. First of all, NATO should set the standards that all allies should adhere to. We've probably got worse since the end of the Cold War in adhering to the standards that are already there. So if you see the proliferation of the number of 155 millimeter artillery systems, for example, you know, frankly, it, it's, it's not helpful that we have that proliferation at the moment, and it's uh, hindered our ability to maintain the right kind of supply to uh, Ukraine. So. NATO's got to set standards uh, and allies have got to observe those standards. So there's a big standard setting bit of it. Secondly, uh, I think NATO's also got uh, an important role to play in catalyzing multinational, multi-year uh, procurement processes. Industry is clear that they want uh, a substantive demand signal uh, from, from governments, from the alliance. And they want clarity about how long we think we're going to need what kind of levels of supply. So uh, I think you know, another area for NATO to do will be to bring people together so to say, okay, we have this kind of aggregate demand for this kind of product. Let's come together as a group of countries. Let's pool our resources. Let's send a clear long-term demand signal to incentivize our industries to invest in those areas. Then the third area, that NATO's got a really uh, big role to play on is in helping break down barriers. 
Most of our defence industries now rely on international collaboration and partnership, and we just must all make sure that we are doing everything to increase the, the, the prospects for that kind of partnership, uh, and that we are not, whether deliberately or inadvertently, putting up barriers there. And as I mentioned, you know, cooperation with the EU will be really important there. We welcome the work that the EU is doing to boost defence industrial capacity across the European Union. But it's got to be done in a way that's complementary to NATO, and certainly that doesn't put any barriers up to uh, cooperation with uh, non-EU allies, for example. And, and just maybe on that, I mean, there's been an initiative from the Estonians that now has been uh, taken up by the EU uh, to invest in, in uh, ammunition capacity to build the 155 millimeter mortar rounds that are so vital uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, in, in the UK now not being part of the EU, um, but there's still avenues for potential defense cooperation uh, for UK and the EU. Uh, do you see this as, a, as an area where there could be an avenue for for greater UK EU cooperation in in the defence uh, in the defence field. Yeah, we we are more than ready to to work with the European Union uh, on uh, issues in this field. And I think actually one of the success stories out of the terrible tragedy of the last sixteen months is the cooperation that we've seen both between the UK and the EU, for example, on uh, sanctions policy and implementation. But also between the between NATO and the EU, and we are advocates of cooperation between the two organisations. There are lots of issues that we're facing at the moment where both organisations have an important role to play. There needs to be the right division of labour between the two, and for the UK, NATO will always be paramount in terms of issues of Euro-Atlantic security. But this, yeah, this has got to be a team sport given the scale of the challenge that we are facing today. So, for example, for the UK and the EU, you know, we have applied to join the PESCO project on uh, military mobility. That's a good practical example of uh, what we are doing to uh, to deepen our cooperation in an area where there's a clear practical need and a route forward to addressing that need. Yeah, I, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't give uh, our uh, CSIS a, a bit of a plug. We just came out with a report looking at transforming European defence and, and calling for a focus on integration in which we really highlight uh, the potential role that the EU can play in a complementary way of NATO, but using its potential access to resources through its own currency to make investments that would uh, help fill many of the NATO gaps that that exist. Maybe now we'll, we, we, we should pivot to talking about what I think will be the, the most headline grabbing uh, aspect of the summit, and that's uh, Ukraine, uh, for very good reason. Uh, but the potential for Ukraine membership has been uh, discussed. The Ukrainians are pushing it. Uh, there's uh, many in the, the think tank and, and foreign policy community that are you know, uh, taking to the, the airwaves and op-ed pages and, and pushing for Ukraine membership. Um, what do you think are the prospects of, of Ukraine membership at the summit? Um, and if, if they're not, uh, obviously, uh, probably likely to to join uh, in, in the next couple of weeks. What do you think the sort of pathway uh, is, is there for Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, clearly Ukraine will be one of the priority themes uh, for the, the Vilnius summit. In Madrid last year, there was really strong allied unity uh, behind Ukraine in the early months of the conflict. And I'm absolutely confident we will see that again uh, at Vilnius. Uh, I think we'll probably see sort of three aspects uh, with regard to, to Ukraine at Vilnius, one of which will be uh, about 
just emphasizing that uh, the closeness of the relationship between NATO and Ukraine, you know, that relationship uh, existed before the current conflict, it's going on during the current conflict, and it will further deepen uh, after the conflict. Now, if you, as my Prime Minister has said, Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. So we will want to emphasize that. And of course, yeah, we totally understand Ukrainian aspirations to move forward on that. We need to be realistic about what can be achieved you know, in the middle of the conflict. But I think we'll want to send a strong, positive uh, signal. So I think that's the first dimension. The second dimension will be about deepening uh, NATO's practical support to Ukraine. And that will be primarily through uh, expansion of what's called the Comprehensive Assistance Package. I think it's up to about 500 million US dollars this year. It's focused on non-lethal support in all kinds of uh, practical areas. And it has a really important strand about building uh, Ukrainian long-term capability and interoperability with uh, NATO. But there'll be a strong sort of practical dimension. And then the third element will be about sort of beefing up the political relationship now between uh, NATO and Ukraine. And we'll have the launch, uh, we hope, of the first uh, NATO-Ukraine council meeting uh, at Vilnius. Um, that's different than the current arrangements we have. It brings Ukraine much closer to the alliance. It gives them a different level of engagement with the alliance. And it means they sit as an equal with all other NATO allies around the table, helping shape the agenda and, and, and broaden cooperation. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big package, I think, and that should be a really clear message to everyone about the alliance's determination to stick with Ukraine for as long as it takes. They are, in many respects, fighting our fight, and so I'm really encouraged by the how resolute and united the alliance is in its support of Ukraine still. Maybe I could pick up on the, the I think the second point that you made about um, the financial support for uh, for Ukraine uh, in in really providing it uh, security assistance. In in uh, it's been uh, suggested and proposed that instead of uh, Ukraine being sort of granted membership, um, which would then create complications with uh, Article Five and whether Article Five would be invoked, and then therefore prompting war between NATO and, and Russia, uh, but that that NATO and NATO countries, uh, the U.S., U.K., and others, um, uh, sort of go toward an Israel model, the sort of relationship the United States has with uh, the Israelis, where we provide. Uh, more than $3 billion in security assistance to Israel every year. The Israelis know that they have that money coming. They can make their defense plans and defense acquisition uh, plans around that. And that uh, significantly helps bolster uh, Israel's defense such that it has a qualitative military edge uh, in the region and helps ensure its security. Uh, and there's been discussion of, of something like this happening uh, with Ukraine. It may not exactly uh, uh, be a NATO effort, but is you know what can you tell us about uh, UK, the UK potentially being part of a, a longer term uh, security assistance support uh, package uh, for Ukraine? Yeah, so my Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak spoke about this several months ago. Uh, in fact, at the Munich Security Conference, and he said there that in our UK view, uh, Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. Uh, but we will wait for that day to come uh, after the conflict to continue providing more security support to Ukraine. So obviously we're continuing to provide extraordinary levels of, uh, of support during the conflict. 
But we're also interested in in signaling our commitment to a longer term relationship uh, with Ukraine because they are, they are likely to face a complex security situation, uh, unfortunately, for, for the foreseeable future at the moment. Maybe I could uh, ask you about Russia a bit. So, you know, the alliance last year in Madrid really refocused the attention on the major security threat to Europe, which was clearly uh, the Russian Federation, uh, given that it had just invaded a sovereign uh, country uh, without cause. Um, but now, you know, a year on, uh, and I was at the Madrid summit last year, and you could really sense the kind of urgency and concern that uh, that Russia could continue, uh, that if it was successful in Ukraine, could further on and further challenge the alliance. But a year on from that, well, we've seen the Russian military um, uh, be attrited uh, uh, quite dramatically uh, and, uh, and, and uh, suffer... Uh, real defeats in the north uh, in Kherson and sort of be pushed back. It just went on major counteroffensive. The Russians did our major offensive over the uh, beginning part of this year and made almost no progress. Uh, do you think that some countries will look at, at the state of the Russian military, the job that the Ukrainians are doing, and say, you know, the urgency of the threat uh, may be dissipated uh, and maybe we either A, don't have to spend as much or we have more time to really uh, uh, prepare our forces uh, for w when Russia rebuilds. Do you think, is that playing at all in, in how NATO is, in, in how NATO or other European capitals are, are beginning to think about uh, uh, their defense forces? Not really, in terms of what I see here. As we were talking about earlier, you know, Madrid, sorry, uh, Vilnius is on track to agree the most important transformation of NATO's deterrence and defence since the end of the Cold War. And that is based on a very hard-headed assessment, much of it set out in the strategic concept last year, of the challenge that Russia continues to pose to your Atlantic security. Personally, I think it would be a big mistake to think that that uh, challenge is going to lessen uh, over the coming years just because of what's happened in Ukraine. You know, I would love to think there might be some change in Russia which would lead to an easing of the geopolitical situation but it would certainly be unwise to plan on that basis uh, at the moment. So NATO's doing the responsible thing. As, as you said in, in one of your earlier remarks, we are planning to defend every inch of allied territory. We have got the new plans. We've got all the work on uh, defence uh, capability. We've got the Defence Investment Pledge, which we haven't touched on yet. We've got all the work on the industrial side. It must be the right thing to do to plan on the basis that uh, we could be challenged at any moment, at any time and that we have therefore the right plans in place and the right capabilities to implement those plans. But I don't hear anybody saying that we should take the foot off the gas, you know, take our foot off the gas in terms of our planning or preparation just because of the losses that Russia is suffering uh, in Ukraine at the moment. I think it's a great segue to talk about the Defense Investment Pledge. So there, uh, you know, in 2014 uh, at the Wales Summit, it was uh, announced that all NATOs would would all NATO members would commit to spend two percent on defense. Uh, there's been some some real tangible progress in the last decade of countries increasing defense spending, uh, though I think the number of countries that actually hit two percent is is around seven or eight. Uh, maybe it could be nine. I think we're, but it's it's less than a third. Uh, what do you think uh, the prospects are? for NATO countries to actually follow through on, on spending uh, and hitting 2%. And, and there's been talk of 2% now being uh, described as, as the floor 
uh, for defense spending within the alliance. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see the defense investment pledge uh, playing out uh, at Vilnius in a few weeks. Yeah, and of course you're right. The uh, since the, the the Wales pledge in 2014, there has been a very significant increase in allied expenditure on defence. We have seen uh, a 350 billion dollar increase in non-US allied defence investment over the last 10 years. So the Europeans and, and Canada, 350 billion more being invested in defence than uh, was previously the case. But for all the reasons that we've been talking about today, we believe we've got to go further than that. The UK has been consistently over 2% uh, for years, but all allies need to get to 2%. And one of our uh, goals for Vilnius is that the alliance agrees that 2% should be an urgent and enduring minimum for all allies. Now, we're in the, in the negotiations on that at the moment. I can't get too far ahead of that, but that is our goal because as we prepare for an increasingly contested uh, world that we are likely to see in, in the coming years, and as we learn the lessons from Ukraine in terms of uh, the need to, to be ready to deter and defend and to build our defence industrial capacity, all of that points to us needing to spend 2% or more on an enduring basis. Uh, so that's our goal for, uh, for Vilnius. Got a bit of work to do, but I'm confident we will get there. Maybe to turn to Sweden, uh, Finland has has joined the alliance. They're now alliance is now at thirty one, uh, but uh, Sweden is is still on the sidelines, sort of waiting for uh, both Turkey and Hungary uh, to uh, approve their membership. There was uh, a small um, uh, but vile protest that happened in Sweden uh, the other day, uh, where a, a Quran pages of a Quran were torn and, and burned, and that has prompted Turkey uh, and Erdogan to say that Sweden isn't ready. Uh, however, Sweden is also a country that enables freedom of expression. Uh, and so what? how do you see this playing out? I mean, it seems that uh, just from an outsider's perspective that we've been, that the alliance has been very understanding of Turkish concerns, uh, has tried to uh, ameliorate them as of Sweden, but is it time to maybe get a little bit more blunt with the Turks? Because blocking a country like Sweden, which is you know a very important Baltic state that really meets many all the NATO requirements, uh, strikes me as as something that is uh, really divisive right now uh, in terms of the alliance. Well, our UK view on this is is very clear. Uh, we think that Sweden, uh, like Finland, will be a fantastic ally. We think they've got a great contribution to make to the alliance. They are a highly capable country. They have done a lot of work with NATO uh, over the years. We've trained together. We've exercised together. And say they've got terrific uh, military capabilities. They will also bring great values to the alliance uh, as well. We you know, obviously welcome the decision that was made uh, at the Madrid summit last year. It was one of the proudest moments of my career to sign the uh, accession invitations uh, for both Finland and Sweden. And we think that Sweden has done everything that it needs to do to join the alliance. So we still very much hope that Sweden will be a full ally uh, by the time of the Vilnius summit. All of those conversations uh, continue at the moment. But we really look forward to the day when Sweden becomes a full ally, because just like Finland, they will make a massive net positive contribution to the alliance. So, so maybe I can ask you, are, are, is the UK or are you having tough conversations with your, your Turkish counterpart or 
uh, or maybe you're you know taking you're you're, you're appealing to your Tur- or are you the good cop or are there other ways that you're trying to engage Turkey uh, to try to get this over the line in the coming weeks? And do you think there could be uh, progress here? Or do you think the Turks are really dug in? Well, Max, you, you won't be surprised that 12 days out from the summit, I'm not going to go into the guts of the conversations <laughs> that are happening here at NATO HQ and between capitals. But yeah, we've got a, a fantastic relationship with Turkey uh, and also with Hungary. There's intense conversation going on uh, at the moment. But our goal is very clear to get Sweden in as a full ally by the time of the Vilnius summit. So just to, not to be uh, too much of a journalist here, but are, are you so are you optimistic that there could be a breakthrough um, or uh, yeah, how optimistic are you uh, about Sweden potentially getting over the line? We're working really hard at it. I see no reason not to be an optimist at the moment. So we'll just keep plugging away. Great. Maybe we can turn now to the Indo-Pacific. There was a lot of conversation about NATO uh, opening a, an office in Tokyo. Um, that uh, appears, well, you can tell us if that's on hold. Uh, there was uh, some concerns from the French, but but uh, Ben Wallace, the uh, UK uh, Defense Secretary uh, noted that he agreed with some of the, the French concerns uh, about what a NATO office uh, would be doing uh, in Japan and, and what sort of messages or signal that that sends. Um, what do you think NATO's role is in the Indo-Pacific and, and what, what can you tell us about the discussions about, uh, about NATO opening an office in, in, in Japan? So we really look forward to the leaders of uh, Australia, Japan, uh, Republic of Korea and New Zealand uh, attending the Vilnius summit as they did the Madrid summit. And I think there's a really positive trend in terms of the deepening partnership uh, with those countries and with others in the Indo-Pacific region. We're looking at at an increasingly complex global uh, security situation. NATO is and will remain a Euro-Atlantic alliance. We are not seeking to take NATO to the uh, Indo-Pacific. But as set out in the strategic concept from Madrid last year, NATO's got to be alive to the growing challenges that will come from other regions to our Euro-Atlantic region. And we have a strong shared interest with democratic partners like those four countries that I mentioned in terms of looking at the shared challenges that we face, uh, looking at how we work together to deepen our cooperation how we actually cooperate to reinforce and, and bolster the open international order that we all support. We've got new partnership agreements that are working through uh, with some of those countries, and we have a really high level of ambition for those uh, partnerships. The, there's been a lot of attention focused on the, the possible NATO liaison office in, in Tokyo. That could happen, uh, but you know, the, the, the most important thing is the quality of the partnership that we develop. Whether there is a, an officer in Tokyo taking that forward or not, in the end, is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the substance of the partnerships. And from my perspective, those continue to deepen every year. And I think we'll see that again in Vilnius in a couple of weeks' time. I want to ask about uh, out-of-area operations um, and and the potential for NATO to still uh, do uh, missions uh, uh, outside of the European theater. Uh, in in some ways that we've you know NATO I think has really pivoted back to its core focus on Russia it makes a ton of sense. However, um, you know I think one of the developments of the United States pivoting really away from the Middle East uh, and North Africa is that the U.S. has sort of pivoted away from uh, from Europe's periphery uh, that create uh, a number of security, or at least potential security challenges uh, to Europe. Um, 
is do you do you think that there's a danger that NATO is sort of taking its eye a little bit too far uh, off the ball of the potential need to continue to do uh, out of area operations and in focusing a bit too much on the conventional um, challenge posed by Russia, or are, is NATO somehow figuring out a way to strike a healthy balance here? Well, we, we have got to strike uh, the right balance in all of this. And it is definitely not the case that NATO has stopped doing uh, out of area stuff. We've got a very successful NATO mission in Iraq, which is doing uh, great work there in support of the government uh, of Iraq. And we hope actually to expand the mandate of the NATO mission uh, in Iraq somewhat. KFOR is playing a really critical role in uh, Kosovo at a delicate time uh, at the moment. But there is an important conversation to be had about uh, NATO's 360 degree approach, uh, as, as, as we describe it. And for example, what NATO's role should be in supporting partners uh, in Africa, uh, in parts of uh, the Middle East. And we had a really good discussion uh, recently with uh, some partners from the region about threats coming out of the Sahel, uh, the impact of uh, climate change on security in the Sahel, what that means for, for example, for migration. Uh, potential impacts on uh, extremism. So uh, I think that one of the conversations at Vilnius, but possibly also looking ahead to to next year's summit, was about you know, how do we turn that into practical cooperation with partners. We one sort of interesting sidebar of the events in in uh, Russia last weekend was to put back into the spotlight the terrible role that the the Wagner Group has played in Africa. They're trying to hollow out democratically accountable security forces, trying to bring a, an authoritarian model of uh, security to, to some countries there. Well, you know, should NATO have a role in actually helping build up democratically accountable, capable security forces in some partners in the South? I mean, I think that's a good debate to have. One maybe final question that, uh, you know, when we look at European uh, military capabilities sort of collectively and, um, uh, particularly uh, uh, of EU NATO members, that that there's many uh, critical capabilities that European uh, countries simply don't have um, and don't have collectively or don't have enough of, such as uh, uh, critical uh, air enabling capabilities, the ISR, the air transport, air refueling. Um, and these building and buying and procuring these assets are sort of oftentimes beyond the capacity of any single country. Do you think more it needs to be done to really uh, enable European forces to fight together and operate together effectively without perhaps the United States uh, uh, being there? Well, yeah, we're an alliance and I hope we are an indivisible alliance. I'm sure we will be and that we will always be bound together by shared interests, but primarily by shared uh, values. But I think there is an important point about uh, burden sharing and about capability development. I think part of it comes back to that defense industrial agenda that we were talking about uh, earlier. And I mentioned that, uh, or you mentioned uh, AUKUS, I mentioned our combat air program. Many of the capability developments that we are working through now will necessarily be multinational efforts. And that should be a positive uh, thing for us. And yeah, as we look to boost uh, European uh, capabilities, I'm sure that will require many of us to work together. That's why one of the outcomes with the Defence Production Action Plan should be more multinational, more multi-annual uh, procurement uh, initiatives. So I think it is important. I wouldn't frame it in the context of the US not being here. But I think it's about Europe taking up its responsibilities uh, in addition. 
Well, Ambassador Corey, I want to thank you so much for uh, being with us uh, today. I know that you are incredibly busy in the in the well, uh, days and, and weeks leading up to the NATO summit. Uh, wish you best of luck in, in convincing the Turks to to, to let uh, Sweden become uh, the 32nd member of NATO. Uh, and it, I think as you outlined, we have a really uh, jam-packed agenda for the Alliance and there's a lot of work to do. So uh, thank you for giving us an hour of your time and hope you're able to get some sleep in, in the, the days ahead. Thank you. Great, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.